Uh, before I begin, I might just add another resource we have that probably Dave has not seen is this comic book, which I drew when I was 19 years old initially. It's been revised and redrawn by me in years since. It's a freebie. It's a discipleship manual. I, di uh, I drew it back in uh, 1972 um, to give out to people who are new converts to whom I knew I would not have opportunity to spend much time acquainting them with the things of God. So I, it's a teaching manual in comic book form. It's not, it's not a children's comic book. It's not an adult comic book either. <clears throat> but it was written for young adults, and it's been used uh, a lot in the past, whatever it's been, 48, 48 years or whatever it's been. Uh, you, can, you can download this from the website, actually, uh, free. Uh, and there's, we don't have anything for sale at the website or anywhere else. In 50, uh, 52 years now of ministry, I've never sold anything, and I don't, I don't care to sell anything. I don't like to sell things. So we have nothing for sale at the website. And when we travel, we don't sell books or anything like that. We don't sell anything. But the books can be obtained from ordinary booksellers, Amazon, and so forth. And, um, and everything at the website is free. All the lectures, there's over 1,500 lectures, Bible studies there. As, as Dave said, uh, every book of the Bible, verse by verse through, and on many hundreds of uh, biblical topics separately. And those lectures are free. Um, and another thing, I... The radio show that I've been doing for 25 years is currently on, I don't know how many stations across the country, but I, I think last I heard it was over 70 stations across the country daily. And I, was, I used to be on in Albuquerque some years ago. I don't believe we are in a station in Albuquerque now. But, uh, but people anywhere can listen to it if you get the app on your phone. Both for, there's an app for Android, there's one for iPhone. Uh, the app is called The Narrow Path. Uh, so if you download the app, you can listen to all the lectures. You can listen to the radio show uh, in archives or live. You, if you have an iPhone, you can actually call into it. I don't know if the Android app has that feature. I think it may. Uh, so everything that we have on the website is also available on your phone if you get The Narrow Path app. Now... Um, Dave told me that he wanted to have a Q&A tonight, which is, frankly, I, I like that. Uh, frankly, I, I, I do. When people ask me to teach on a subject, I'll teach on a subject, but when they just say, let's do Q&A, that makes my life real easy, you know? That's why I do an hour a day on the radio, and I've had other Christian broadcasters ask me, how much prep do you have to do for your show every day? I said, 52 years because I don't know what I'm going to be asked. I have no idea what I'm going to talk about on the radio show. We go on the air, and I just open the phone lines, and the callers decide what we're going to talk about. If I don't know an answer, I will tell you I don't know. That makes it very stress-free for me. And uh, yet Dave uh, did hand me a couple of questions he wanted me to start off with. And these are not small ones. They're both on the same subject, so I'm going to go ahead and combine them. 
This has to do with Revelation 20, which you may know is the chapter, the only chapter in the Bible that mentions a thousand years, uh, a reign of Christ and his saints for a thousand years. Now, there are other passages in the Bible that allude to this period of time, not, not a thousand years, but the reign of Christ. These are found largely in the Old Testament, Isaiah, four of the Psalms, uh, and, and frankly, all the prophets, most of them at least, have some reference to the reign of the Messiah. None of them mention a thousand years. In fact, the Old Testament references usually refer to his reign being eternal. Of the increase of his government, there should be no end. Upon the throne of David, uh, to order it and establish it, uh, henceforth even forevermore. That's the Messiah's kingdom. That's uh, eternal. But when you come to Revelation 20, and if you've been reading through the Bible up to that point, you've read everything except the last three chapters of the Bible, for the first time you encounter a thousand years mentioned. It's obviously associated with the reign of Christ because it talks about people who live and reign with Christ for a thousand years. This is usually called the millennium, which is not a very imaginative label to give it since the word millennium means a thousand years. And uh, when Christians talk about the millennium as a theological issue, they're talking about Revelation 20. They're probably also talking about all the other passages in the Old Testament about the Messiah's reign, but only Revelation 20 would give us reason to call it a millennium because you don't read of it being a thousand years until Revelation 20. And there you find it six times referred to as a thousand years. The questions, how has the church historically understood the thousand years and how should we understand the thousand years biblically? In the early days of the church, the church fathers for the first three centuries uh, were what we call largely, uh, they called them chiliasts, which is the Greek form of millennialist. Chiliasm is the, refers to a thousand years. Millennium is a Latin term for a thousand years, so they were premillennial. Most of the church fathers, when they spoke about the millennium, they were speaking of it as something that Jesus would establish when he returns for a thousand years he'd reign on earth. Now, this view is also extremely popular in our time, and it was seemingly the dominant view of the church fathers for the first 300 years or so. It was not the only view. Justin Martyr was one of the church fathers who believed in the premillennial view, but he said there were many, he said this was his view, and he said uh, he thinks all right-minded Christians think that way, he said, but there are many sincere Christians who, thank you, who, uh, who, who love the Lord and are in the true faith, he said, who think otherwise. Now, he didn't say what they think otherwise. But apparently, although the church fathers who mentioned it, that we have their writings surviving today to read, typically held the premillennial view. What's that? Why is it called premillennial? Well, they didn't call it premillennial, and they called it chiliasm, but the... Uh, Today we call it a premillennial view because it speaks of the second coming of Christ before the millennium. So the premillennial view holds that there's a premillennial return of Christ. And it, therefore the argument is when Jesus comes, he'll establish the millennium. 
that is a reign on earth of righteousness and peace and justice, 4,000 years. And as you read through Revelation 20, you see at the end of that 1,000 years, Satan, who has been bound for that 1,000 years, is released for what's referred to as a little while. At the end of that time, Satan is destroyed. Uh, he, he besieges, as it says in the passage, the beloved city, and fire from heaven comes down and destroys Satan and the armies he has amassed against the beloved city. After that, in Revelation 20, we read of a general uh, resurrection and judgment of everybody, and some are uh, go away into the lake of fire. And those who do not apparently go into the new Jerusalem because at the end of Revelation 20, we, we see Christ on the throne. It says, from whose face the heavens and the earth fled away because there was no more place found for them. And so we have the end of the heavens and the earth also at the end of the thousand years. And then Revelation 21 begins, I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. So if I could summarize, the premillennial view is that Jesus returns before the millennium, but he establishes the millennial reign on earth with his saints whom he resurrects from the dead at his coming. Uh, on this view, he only resurrects the saints at his coming. The other dead, the, the lost, are also resurrected to go to judgment at the end of the thousand years. So on this view, there's a thousand year interval between the resurrection of the Christians on the one hand and the resurrection of the non-saved on the other. In that thousand years, Christ reigns on earth because Satan is bound and so there's a reign of righteousness and peace and great justice and prosperity and all that for a thousand years after Jesus has returned and is here. Satan is then loosed briefly, makes trouble and is destroyed by fire from heaven. And at the end of that time then, there's going to be resurrection, judgment, and new heavens and new earth. That's the premillennial view. And that was held by uh, the, almost all the early church fathers who have left any record of their beliefs on the subject. Now we have to remember a lot of people wrote things that, whose writings we don't have. Uh, we don't know how many church fathers may have held some other view. Justin knew, Justin Martyr knew of some who held other views, though he was himself premillennial. But we have no record of uh, any but the premillennialist writing in the first three centuries. So this is considered to be the historic view of the church. Now, in the third century, a man named Origen, and before him Clement of Alexandria, his mentor, uh, were teaching something else, which I'll, I'll describe to you in a moment. This something else uh, apparently did not catch on as a major view until Augustine, around 400 AD. And Augustine taught what's called amillennialism. Now amillennial, the, the letter A before the word negates the word, as if we would say non-millennialism. Amillennialism is the idea that there's no literal thousand year reign, but there is a reign. There is a reign of Christ. But on this view, this reign takes place at the present time. It began at the first coming of Jesus and ends at the second coming of Christ. Therefore, on this view, Jesus did not come back at the beginning of the millennium, 
He came the first time, 2,000 years ago at the beginning of the millennium, but the millennium's not literally 1,000 years. 1,000 years is symbolic, uh, or simply refers to a really long period of time. Now, the reason for not taking this literally, the 1,000 years, is because the term 1,000 is used many times in the scripture in which it's not literal, and almost never when it is. In the Old Testament, for example, the number 1,000 is only used literally in cases where it's giving a census or uh, an amount of money that's brought for something or another. When it's 1,000 pieces of silver or whatever, we have reason to believe that's a, a literal. But the word 1,000 is used lots of times in the Old Testament and the New in a non-literal way. The Bible says in Psalm 50 that God owns the cattle on a 1,000 hills. We're not expected to think that it's exactly a thousand. It just means a lot of hills. A thousand is an indeterminate huge number. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. In Deuteronomy, it says he keeps covenant for a thousand generations. Once again, we'd, I think, be mistaken if we try to make the thousand generations a literal thousand generations, as opposed to, say, forever. The psalmist said, a day in your courts is better than a thousand. Again, I don't think he's thinking there's an exact, you know, balance. There's one day over here and there's a thou literally a thousand here. Oh, it balances just out. It's impressionistic. It's basically saying a thousand, you know, could be any number, but it's a very large number. In Psalm 90, the psalmist said, uh, a thousand years in your sight are as but yesterday when it is past, and like a watch in the night. So there the psalmist says a thousand years which is taken, I think, just you know, a very long time for us. To God, it's like yesterday or like a three-hour period. And Peter seems to pick this idea up in 2 Peter chapter 3, where he says a day to the Lord is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. Now, there may be some people who would take those thousands, in all those cases, literally, but I don't think it's, I don't think it's what is intended. And the thousand years of binding Satan and the thousand year reign of Christ is to the amillennial view uh, symbolic, just like these other thousands, of just a very large number. Now Satan is bound at the beginning of Revelation for a thousand years. Christ reigns for a thousand years, then he's, Satan's loosed a bit, and then there's all the rest. Here's how the amillennialist understands that whole thing. In the first three verses of Revelation 20, um, we actually see the, the binding of Satan take place. We're told by way of anticipation, he will be bound for a thousand years, so he might not deceive the nations anymore, but he must be loosed a little while after that. That's the first three verses. The next three verses, verses four through six, talk about how John saw in heaven thrones. Well, he doesn't say it's in heaven, but I think we have to assume it's in heaven because he saw thrones and he saw the souls of those who were martyred for Christ reigning there. Now, it would seem that the only place that souls could be seen would be, of martyrs would be in heaven because he distinctly does not see them in their bodies. He sees their souls seated on thrones. Now, the only time my soul would ever be in heaven would be after I died and my soul is no longer at home in the body, but is present with the Lord. 
and prior to the second coming of Christ when he'll raise me from the dead and I won't be a disembodied soul anymore. I'll be in my body. The only time that souls of Christians could be seen, you know, separately from their bodies would be after they've left their bodies and before they're resurrected into their bodies. That is between death and the second coming of Christ. The amillennial view, there's different amillennial views, but the one that makes, to my mind, the most sense would be he sees these saints in heaven reigning with Christ for a thousand years. Now, there are those who would say that this is, he's seen saints on earth reigning with Christ, of course, after he's come back, and he on earth as well. Revelation 20 doesn't make any reference to Christ being on earth anywhere. Uh, and it doesn't mention the saints being on earth in, in this capacity of reigning with Christ. So after those six verses are done, verse seven says, after the thousand years are passed, Satan is loosed from his prison for a little while. He goes out to deceive the nations as before, uh, Gog and Magog, and he brings them all uh, under his deception, under his influence to encompass the beloved city. The beloved city being an image for the, the body of Christ, the church. Jesus said to his disciples, you are the light of the world, a city set on a hill cannot be hid. In Revelation 21, the bride uh, this is a city, the new Jerusalem dressed as a bride to meet her husband. And so the church apparently during this little while that Satan's been loosed is under siege from all the nations of the world that are under the deception of Satan. Might sound a little familiar. Um, at the end of that short siege, it says fire comes down from heaven and consumes them. Then the devil is thrown into the lake of fire and he's there with the beast and the false prophet. Now, the fire from heaven, the amillennial view holds that this is referring to the second coming of Christ. Christ's first coming is when Satan is bound and his second coming is when Satan is destroyed. In 2 Thessalonians 1.8, Paul says that Christ will return in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who don't know God and who don't obey the gospel. So Christ comes in flaming fire, destroys these people. That, the amillennialist believes, is the fire from heaven at the end of the thousand years. And then you have the resurrection, the judgment, and the end of the world. Now, people would, the main objection people have to uh, amillennialism when they hear it for the first time, as I say, wait, you're suggesting then that Satan is bound at the present time and cannot deceive the nations? Give me a break. The nations are still being deceived. Satan's been active. How could anyone say he's bound? Didn't Peter say that your adversary, the devil, like a roaring lion, walks about seeking whom he may devour? The amillennial answer to that is when Jesus was on earth, he was accused of casting out demons by Beelzebub, the prince of demons. And he said, no, if Satan casts out demons, his kingdom can't stand. But if I'm casting out demons by the spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Then he said, or else how can a man enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds 
the strong man, and then he will plunder his goods. The context of this statement apparently is that Jesus said, you're looking for an explanation of how I can cast demons out of people. You're suggesting maybe I'm doing it by the power of the devil. Actually, I'm not doing it by the power of the devil. The opposite is true. I'm doing it by the weakness of the devil. He's been disabled. He's been weakened. He's like a, a, a strong man who's been bound in his own house by a home invader who is now ransacking his house and taking his things. The casting out of demons out of people was Christ delivering them from the prison house that Satan had kept them in. He's taking Satan's possessions. Now, if we take that seriously, we know that Jesus is saying that he is able to cast out demons because he has bound Satan. Yet, Satan was not bound in any literal sense. In fact, when you look at the uh, parallel to that, excuse me, for the pop, uh, I'll try to stay away from, from pop, popping in the microphone. When you look at the same statement of Jesus in the parallel account in Luke, it says, when a strong man, fully armed, keeps his house, his goods are secure. But when one stronger than he comes, he takes away all his armor in which he trusted and plunders his house. Slightly different wording. In Matthew 12, he says that he, the, strong, the, the invader, binds the strong man and plunders his house. In Luke, he says he takes away the strong man's armor and plunders his house. Different images for the same idea. The idea being the strong man, Satan, is simply rendered incapable of resistance. He's not literally tied up in a closet. He's not literally standing there with no armor on. These are images to suggest if you're going to plunder a strong man's house, you're going to have to render him incapable of resistance. Binding him is one illustration. Taking away his armor is another. Either way, he is disabled, he's weakened, and he cannot resist you. And that's what I believe Jesus was saying. You say I'm casting out demons by the power of Satan. I'm casting out demons because of the disability of Satan, because of the, the, the robbing of Satan of his power. He can't stop me. I'm casting out demons by the Spirit of God because the kingdom of God has come upon you, he said. Now, we know that Satan wasn't literally bound. The imagery is not literal. But it's saying something. When we say that something in the Bible is not literal, we don't mean it doesn't mean anything, nor do we mean that it can mean anything we wish it to mean. It means that we have to ask, well, why is this imagery used? when we read the parables of Jesus or any other metaphorical language in Scripture, what does this metaphor, what's it trying to say? And my, my opinion is it's saying that Jesus bound Satan, not in a literal sense, but in the sense that Satan was weakened and rendered incapable of effective resistance to Christ's kingdom and its penetration into the devil's realm. Now, if that's true in Matthew 12, might it be true in Revelation 20? In Revelation 20, the imagery is much more flamboyant. A great angel comes down from heaven with a chain in his hand. He grabs a dragon, puts the chain on the dragon, throws him into a bottomless pit, shuts it with a lid, puts a seal on it, and he's, he's in that pit for a thousand years. So that, it says, so that he might not deceive the nations anymore. 
Well, we know that when Jesus said he had bound the strong man, Satan was still deceiving people. So the imagery of Satan being bound doesn't necessarily mean that he can't deceive anyone. What would it mean to a Jewish audience, especially or Jewish Christians, to hear of Satan not deceiving the nations anymore? Well, the nations to the Jew are in contrast to Israel. There's Israel is one thing, it, the, the nations are everything else. In Hebrew, the word goyim is nations or Gentiles. In the Old Testament, God chose Israel and revealed himself to Israel, gave them the law, gave them the scriptures and the prophets so they would have light. The rest of the world, not so much. They had a little bit of light from nature and so forth, but for the most part, God did not reveal his will, his mind, himself, clearly to the Gentiles. They were the pagans. They were a lesser breed without the law. Israel saw a great distinction between themselves and the pagans. Satan deceived the pagans, the nations, but not Israel. Well, of course, Israel got deceived many times too. They worshiped Baal and Moloch and so forth, but still God was working with Israel as he was not with the pagans or the Gentiles. Now, when Jesus came, he gave a commission to his disciples. He said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. That means Christ has all the authority to reign in heaven and earth. He says, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you. Now, that commission was to take his light to the nations. Satan had had control of the nations. He had hegemony over the nations. They were his by right. They were his captives. They were his deceived ones. They were totally in the dark. Not anymore. With sending the disciples out to disciple all the nations, he was ending Satan's right and power to deceive that sector of humanity any longer. Sure, Satan can deceive anyone he wants to. He can deceive Jews, Gentiles, Christians even. The devil's a liar. He deceives the world. But the binding him so he might not, dece might not deceive the Gentiles anymore is understood by the amillennial simply to mean not that Satan's literally bound somewhere. All the imagery is symbolic. The devil's not a real dragon. Uh, Satan is a spirit, not a dragon. You can't bind a spirit with a literal chain. The idea of you know, putting a chain around the neck of a dragon, throwing it into a bottomless pit with a lid, very dramatic imagery, as Revelation is wont to use in all of its visions. The question is, are we supposed to take all the imagery in Revelation literally, or is it getting some point across? I have to say I was raised with the idea that we should take everything in Revelation literally, and that those who don't are not taking the Bible seriously. But I've never heard a good explanation or any good examples of anyone who took a beast with the mouth of a lion, the body of a leopard, feet of a bear, and seven heads and ten horns as a literal description of an animal. Usually, since that's in Revelation 13, people refer to that as the beast or the Antichrist. They most people think that's referring to an individual man. Well, if it is, it's not literal. 
I've never seen a man walking on all fours with feet like a bear, having seven heads and 10 horns. We are told in Revelation that seven heads represent both seven kings and seven mountains when you read Revelation 17.10. Uh, but we're also told that the 10 horns are 10 kings. So we're not talking about one man, nor are we talking about a real animal. Any more than Daniel's talking about real animals. When in Daniel 7, he sees a lion come out of the sea, then a bear, then a leopard, and then a, a 10-horned beast. We recognize as, these are empires. Babylon, Media, Persia, Greece, Rome. Not literal animals. The animals are not literal. Jesus in Revelation, when he's first seen there, after the visions begin, I should say, that is after chapter one. In chapter five, verse six, Jesus is described as a lamb having seven eyes and seven horns. About 26 other times in Revelation, he's called a lamb after that. But we know Jesus isn't literally a lamb. We call him the Lamb of God. We almost think, oh, that's literal. He's literally the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, do you understand what a lamb is? Anyone ever raised sheep? Jesus was not a lamb. Lamb is a metaphor of a sacrificial victim. Jesus gave his life a sacrifice for sins like lambs did in the Old Testament. But he's not a literal lamb. And even if he were a literal lamb, You'd be surprised to see seven eyes on his head and seven horns. Yet that's the description of him in Revelation. Not literal. These are symbolic images. And therefore, the amillennialist believes that all the visions in Revelation are intended to be taken uh, non-literally. And that uh, the thousand years is not literal. Uh, the, the devil being a dragon with seven heads and ten horns as he's described in Revelation 12. Uh, that's not literal. The bottomless pit is not literal. The idea being the visions of Revelation are taken to be impressionistic, uh, to make an impression. And that the binding of Satan for a thousand years is given the impression of Satan being conquered at the cross and rendered incapable of keeping all the nations in the dark as he once did. Because the gospel is going to him. In Colossians 1.15 it says that Christ through the cross disarmed the principalities and powers and made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in the cross. And Hebrews chapter 2 in verse 14 says Christ, through death, destroyed him who had the power of death, which is the devil, it says. The word destroyed there, the Greek word is katergeo, which means to reduce to inactivity. Through death, this is what Jesus did to Satan. Reduced him to inactivity? I think he's pretty active. Like I said, even Peter says he's a roaring lion walking around. Yeah, this is not literally. I mean, otherwise we'd have some serious problems. Paul did, or the writer of Hebrews did say, through death, Jesus destroyed the devil who had the power of death or rendered him inactive. Comparatively so, compared to before. And so the amillennial view holds 
the binding of Satan at the beginning of Revelation 20 is symbolically the conquest of the dark powers and of Satan and the release of the light and the gospel to the world, to the Gentile nations that occurred at Christ's first coming. The thousand years is just seemed to be a long time. Could be any number of thousands of years. At the end of that, there's a short time where Satan's released and he does deceive the nations again. I would assume that would look like the nations go back to paganism and the church, the beloved city is besieged and then of course the fire from heaven coming down it would be understood by the amillennials as the second coming of Christ so that's the second view the third view is called postmillennialism this view is very similar to amillennialism in many respects uh, many postmillennialists believe the binding of Satan was at the first coming of Christ and that the thousand years is a symbolic of a long period of time. But older postmillennialists believe that the binding of Satan has not yet occurred, but that it will come before Jesus returns. They believe that the church, through its successful missionary efforts, will convert essentially the world and that for a thousand years, give or take, the world will be essentially a Christian world. And, uh, and then at the end of that time, Jesus will come back. And so this is called post-millennialism because it believes in a post-millennial, a coming of Christ after the millennium. So pre-millennialism sees Jesus coming at the beginning of the millennium, starting it. Amillennialism doesn't see a future millennium at all. It sees the millennium as a symbolic vision of the age that Christ inaugurated when he came in which we are living. And post-millennialism sees the millennium essentially as describing a world uh, possibly a thousand years. I don't think post-millennialists care if it's literal or not, but a world that's conquered by the gospel. You know, they would say, we would say in objection to post-millennialism, well, how can they possibly think that? The gospel doesn't seem to be converting the world. Look at America. It's, you know, the gospel seems to have less um, you know, power here than it had 50 years ago. How could anyone think things are getting better? The post-millennialists would answer that saying, well, we don't know how far along we are in the church age. After 2,000 years, we, we may still be in the infancy of the church age. How do we know it won't go 10,000 years or more? Now, these things go against our instincts, but that's because we've been so conditioned to believe the second coming is so near just to readjust and think, well, wait, maybe, what if, what if it's not? Since every generation since the time of Christ for the past 2,000 years had some among it who were quite sure that the coming was near in their time, maybe we're not much different than the rest of them and no more right than they were. And so the post-millennialists would say, well, you know, if we just look at the past 2,000 years, there's been tremendous progress. 2,000 years ago, there were 120 believers in Christ filled with the Spirit on the day of Pentecost. That, later that day, there were 3,000 and then in multiplied thousands. And then it spread to the Gentiles too. 
And now there's no country in the world where there aren't converts and missionaries and churches that are still reaching out, reaching more. At, at the time of, of this uh, talk, about a third of the population of the world identify themselves as Christians. Now, Christ might not identify them all as Christians. <laughs> there will be many who say, Lord, Lord, we did these things. Your name, he'll say, I never knew you. So without any speculation about how many people who call themselves Christians may really be Christians, that'd be a call I'm in no position to make. I can say this, that from 120 people who professed to be Christians 2,000 years ago to something like 2.5 billion people who call themselves Christians today, regardless what percentage of them really are, it's tremendous spreading of the gospel. It's a tremendous spreading of the kingdom of God. And, you know, it given, let's say, given another thousand years, or maybe considerably less given because of the, you know, the uh, technology we have and things like that, let's say another hundred years or 200 years, who could predict how much influence Christianity will have? In times of revival, like those of Charles Finney or John Wesley or... George Whitfield, or the Great Awakening, Jonathan Edwards, uh, or many other revivals that have happened. Sometimes whole communities are converted. The bars closed because no one's drinking. The jails are empty because no one's doing crimes. And these things sometimes last for decades. They eventually, eventually, you know, sin creeps back in again, things get bad. But if this can happen in a community, the post-millennial says, who's to say it can't happen in a state or a country or a continent? Where are the limits of what God's able to do? Especially, they say, if he's determined to do it. Because Paul said, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. They say, that, they feel that will happen before Jesus comes back. Now, Paul doesn't say it'll happen before Jesus comes back. But he doesn't say one way or the other when that'll happen. It does say in uh, 1 Corinthians 15 that Christ is reigning at the right hand of God. And Paul said he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And then comes the end. And so post-millennials would say, well, you and I were enemies. He's put us under his feet. We're now submitted to him. If he's going to put all his enemies under his feet, and the last enemy being death, then maybe there won't be any left to not put under his feet. Now, I'm not a post-millennialist. I don't, uh, I'm, not make, I'm not trying to persuade him to become one. Uh, I'm just saying, you know, how has the, I was asked, how has the church understood the Revelation 20? And biblically, how should we understand it? You can probably tell I'm an amillennialist now. I was raised premillennial. I was trained premillennial. And I began my ministry as a premillennial teacher, specifically dispensationalist. Um, I've been persuaded otherwise since then. But uh, all these views have been held by good Christians. There's really no one of these views that marks anyone as a heretic. The truth is, after Augustine, 
of a man of whom I'm not a fan. I have my differences with Augustine, but there's no, no questioning it. Augustine was the most influential theologian in the past 2,000 years. He's the father of Roman Catholicism. He's the father of the Reformation. Luther was an Augustinian monk. Calvin was Augustinian. Uh, but it was also Augustine persuaded the church that you know, the, the bishop of Rome should be submitted to by all the other bishops. He's pretty much the father of Roman Catholicism by most historians' estimate. There's been no theologian in the West, at least, more influential than Augustine, but he, uh, he's the one who made amillennialism kind of standard for the church. There were amillennialists before him, but his embrace of it made it standardized for the church, like most of his views. Um, from Augustine on until the 1800s, both the Catholic Church and the Protestant churches were all pretty much amillennial. Luther was amillennial, Calvin was amillennial, um, John Knox was amillennial, Wycliffe, Tyndale, and, uh, and even Wesley, I believe, was amillennial. Uh, so amillennialism was the view of the church, officially, every branch of the church, um, from Augustine to uh, about the 1800s. In the early 1800s, premillennialism made a resurgence through the influence of a man named John Nelson Darby. And uh, his form of premillennialism was called dispensationalism. And that's another whole thing. Um, people who believe like the church fathers in the first three centuries are usually called historic premillennialists. And there's plenty of them today. But I think probably more common today are the dispensational premillennialists. And this is the view that will argue that the, uh, the restoration of Israel in, is a, a key prophetic development in the last days, uh, there, that there will be a pre-tribulation rapture, a seven-year tribulation, uh, and a rebuilt temple. And they believe that when Jesus comes back, he'll establish uh, a millennial kingdom, which will be characterized by Jewish temple worship. The temple will be rebuilt, animal sacrifice will be reinstituted, Levitical priesthood. This is all part of dispensational teaching. Uh, they take the latter uh, details from Ezekiel 40 through 48 and probably Zechariah 14. So that's the views that are out there. What should a Christian believe biblically? They should believe whatever they find the scripture to teach. Some, obviously, I'm not saying all four views, uh, historic premillennialism, amillennialism, postmillennialism, and dispensational premillennialism. I'm, I'm not saying they can all be right. Obviously, only one of them could really be right. But what I find is that Christians who've held each of these views have proven to be equally devout Christians, equally fruitful Christians, equally good disciples of Jesus. When I find that to be the case, I have to say, if a man can stand across the aisle from where I'm standing on a theological issue, and he's on one side, I'm on the other, 
but he can be as good a Christian as me, maybe even better than me, then that division must not be a deal breaker. If a man can love Jesus as much as I do, lay down his life for Christ as much as I do, live for Christ as much as I do, or better, and, and be totally on the other side of a theological question from where I'm at, it must not be a non-negotiable. For me, I don't judge anybody's uh, Christianity by their eschatology. I myself have changed mine in my lifetime, and so I figure everyone has the right to, to follow their conscience on that. So if, if you say, well, which, uh, how should we understand the thousand years biblically? I would say, well, I, I favor the amillennial approach. But uh, you'll find great people, great Christians who've held the other views as well. So that's like one hour on the first question. Now, questions don't have to be on this subject. Uh, on my radio show, there might be a dozen questions in an hour or eight or six, but there's no guarantee that any two of them will be about very closely related subjects. It's just whatever's on people's minds. So same tonight. Usually with this kind of talk, people have a lot of follow-up questions on that, which you're welcome to ask, but if you have questions on other subjects, I'm comfortable with them. Yes, Moses. Well, most things in the Bible are not um, like the visions of Revelation. The Gospels, for example, are narrative. They're historical narrative. When it says that Jesus did this, and then the next day he did that, and he, and he uh, you know, healed that person, and then he walked on the water, there's no reason to take these things symbolically. These are historical narrative. They're not a genre of literature that, that invites speculations about figurative meanings of things. At least I don't think they are. Now, in those Gospels, when Jesus gives a parable, we are expected to recognize, well, that's a parable. When he told the prodigal son, he's not talking about an actual man and his son. It could be anyone. In fact, his parables usually begin with the words, a certain man sowed seeds. A certain man did this. A certain man did that. Because he's not talking about, a, and it could be any man. He's not telling a true story. He's presenting a, an illustrative story, a parable. In the book of Acts, of course, it's historical narrative, so I just take it literally. However, even in literal narratives, there are such things as metaphors. Because we, in the Western world, almost always take a more or less literal approach to communication. But what we call literal approach, we have to recognize, contains metaphors and figures of speech. Hyperbole, for example. When Jesus said, um, give to everyone who asks you, well, that wouldn't be very good to take literally because, first of all, it would conflict with other things the Bible says, like whoever does not work should not eat. But it's a hyperbole. When Jesus said, when you give, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Well, that certainly isn't literal. Your right hand and left hand don't know what you, anything. They're, they're not knowing members. They're, there are figures of speech. And you'll find them even in the historical narratives. But I mean, when Jesus said, don't forgive seven times, forgive 70 times seven. 
I don't think he's trying to make a literal number of times that we have to forgive and no more after that. Those are what we call hyperbole. And there's other kinds of uh, figures of speech. But those are fairly instinctive. I mean, maybe not always. Uh, when, G when Jesus said, you know, no man has forsaken houses or lands or wives or children or parents for my sake, but will receive a thousand, uh, a hundredfold more, both in this life and the next. Well, he's not giving a literal number there. In fact, in Luke's version, instead of a hundredfold more, it says manyfold, many times more, which is really the meaning of a hundredfold there. So now when you come to Revelation or Daniel or Zechariah, you know you're reading another kind of literature. For one thing, these books are almost entirely made up of visions. Ezekiel also. Lots of the prophets had visions. And some of the books of the prophets, all, all that they communicated was in visions, like Revelation and Zechariah. Now, we do find that these visionary passages are not literal usually. In fact, I don't know of any of them that are. As Zechariah saw a flying scroll going through the air with uh, you know, all these sins of the people of Israel written on the front and the back of it. It was like 30 feet long scroll. That was a vision. He said this scroll is going to enter into the houses of those who are, you know, swear falsely and who are blasphemers or whatever and going to, you know, are thieves. It's going to tear down their houses. Well, it wasn't talking about a literal parchment scroll 30 feet long. It's, an, it's impressionistic. And I believe when Zechariah talks about people's eyes melting in their sockets and their tongues you know, melting in their mouths and things like that under God's judgment. Now, some people take that literally, but I, I personally don't. I think these are, it's not always easy to know what's literal and what's not, but you can be pretty sure that if something's in a, what we call an apocalyptic book, a book that uses mainly visions of sensational events and things like that, stars falling from the sky, the sun and the moon going dark, uh, every mountain and every island disappearing. Uh, you know, that kind of thing. 100-pound hailstones. When, when you've got that kind of stuff, and when it's found in a book that's full of symbolic stuff, it's probably safe to assume in most cases that these details are symbolic too. And especially if you find the same symbols being used in other books, for example, of the Old Testament. But... If you want a hard and fast rule of what, when, how do you know when to take it literally and when symbolically? I guess once you've acquainted yourself with the basic genres of literature that the, that the Bible contains, the rest is kind of intuitive. And you might get it wrong, but that's where Bible study for the rest of your life can lead you out of making mistakes. I mean... I've been studying and teaching the Bible for 52 years, and I'm still seeing things say, oh, I understood that differently, but I, I mean, for example, in Ephesians chapter four, where Paul said um, that Christ ascended, but what is it if he ascended? He first descended to the lower parts of the earth, okay? Now, I was raised being taught that the lower parts of the earth refers to Hades or hell, and that Paul's referring to the fact that Jesus, when he died, went down to Hades. 
and that Ephesians 4 is referring to Hades as the lower parts of the earth. And I, I believed that and taught that for years and years. And then sometime decades after I'd been teaching, I was reading Psalms, I think Psalm 139, and David said, uh, you know, you, basically you formed me in my mother's womb. Uh, when I was in the lower parts of the earth, you shaped me. I thought, wait, in the lower parts of the earth, that's the same phrase Paul used. But David's not talking about Hades, he's talking about his mother's womb. I thought, well, what if Paul meant it that way? What if it meant that Jesus, having ascended, he must first have descended to the lower parts of the earth, that is to become a baby. He had to become one of us. He had to come into a woman's womb and come forth. Then he ascended later on. That would be, you know, that'd be something that, say, I, that was not recent, but after years and years of being familiar with these passages, sometimes you see something, oh, that thing in the Old Testament sounds like what the phrase that Paul's using. Maybe he meant it that way. You should realize when you're the Old Testament that many of the books are poetry books. Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon are all poetry books. And most of the prophets' writings are in poetry as well. Now, we have poetry in the English language. It's different. Its conventions are different than the conventions of poetry in Hebrew, but we know that poetry is a, a genre of literature that doesn't speak literally all the time. For example, one of the Psalms is describing God creating the, the world, you know, the Genesis 1 events. And it describes how God, when he formed dry land, how he shaped it with his hands and shaped dry land to come out, like kind of a picture of a potter working with clay. Well, that's not literally what happened. According to Genesis 1, God just said, let dry land appear, and it did. I accept that as literal. But the psalmist speaking about God shaping the dry land with his hands, I think that's an anthropomorphism. That's a figure of speech. Poetry uses all kinds of figures of speech. So I would say when you're reading just historical narrative, in most cases, it's intuitive if you know a metaphor is thrown in there, some figure of speech is thrown in there, but you largely take it literally because that's largely what historical narrative intends for you to do. When you're reading poetry, which makes up, frankly, most of the Old Testament, well, not most, but a very large part of the Old Testament, you understand, like you'd, if you're reading Shakespeare or English poetry, it's not, not going to be literal. They use lots of flowery language and, and figures. But again, the more you read it, the more you immerse yourself in it, the more you meditate on the Word of God day and night, the more these things just become kind of obvious. I mean, this is a metaphor probably. And again, if you get it wrong, you haven't lost your salvation over it, obviously. And I, I consider we should be lifelong learners. <clears throat> I think that when a person becomes a Christian and realizes they're supposed to read the Bible, hopefully understand it, they perhaps are in, in a hurry to get to understand all of it. Maybe they go to school, maybe they sit under teaching online, maybe they read commentaries, whatever. But they eventually get down a basic understanding of most of the things they want to know in the Bible. It might take a few years, but eventually they feel like, okay, I pretty much understand this. And from that point on, many Christians 
don't want to relearn. It was hard enough getting there in the first place. It's, uh, you know, and I know that because I was taught the whole Bible by a pastor who taught verse by verse through the Bible. I went through it a couple times with him, the whole Bible. And I pretty much bought what he said, mastered it. I could repeat what he said about every verse, pretty much. But then I began to see some things differently than him. And I wasn't looking for trouble. I was just reading my Bible and found some things didn't really seem to match up or some things seemed to explain other things differently than, than my pastor had done. And I didn't want to change my mind. Who wants to change their mind? Especially when you're a teacher. Especially when you've been teaching something. You've, you've gone on record. You believe certain things. I was teaching a, a certain uh, version of Bible prophecy for years. And when I began to see some things in it differently, I was not comfortable. It was not comfortable to think, well, do I have to go back to square one, relearn all this? And the answer was, yeah, I think so. Um, but instead of thinking of that as a real drudgery, I thought, well, this is an adventure <laughs> for me. I mean, one thing I've always found frankly, one of the greatest joys I've, I've experienced is learning the things of God from Scripture. And once you feel like you already understand it all, you know, you kind of settle into, I, may, I don't want to say boring because I don't see how the Bible could become boring, but just into a settled evenness of, okay, I understand it's just now to repeat what I know. The idea that I have to be a lifelong learner and sometimes go back and relook at things I've, that everyone I know saw a certain way is initially unnerving, but, but once you get into it, you feel like, wow, I'm, I'm learning again. I'm learning new stuff again, which is exhilarating as long as you can be sure that what you're learning isn't heresy. Uh, and I'll tell you, I told you I've become a millennial. I became a millennial back in the 70s after being a dispensational teacher for many years. But um, <clears throat> when, my, I, when my ideas were changing, it was bit by bit, because I never met an amillennialist, never heard of, or read a book on. As I was just looking at these things, comparing scripture to scripture, I realized that, wow, I think it should be understood this way. But I actually thought, I, I didn't know that amillennialism was a historic view of the church. I thought I had never met it, I'd never heard it. And I thought I'd become a heretic. I, I couldn't renounce what I was saying because to me, all the scriptures I was seeing moved me that direction, but I, I just was afraid to teach it. You know, I, I mean, I was a teacher, but I wasn't gonna teach it until I ran into somebody who also held those views and told me, yeah, that's the, you know, you know all the reformers held that view, you know? And uh, so I guess, what I'd say to you is if you're saying, well, how do I know how to understand some of these hard passages? If they're symbolic, if they're literal, whatever. I'd say, I'd, I'd say be relaxed about it. If you know who Jesus is, that's all you have to know. The rest is good to know. But 
you can't know all things right now. It'd be nice if as soon as we got saved, a big plug was plugged into our head and God just downloaded all the truth. And some people think, you know, well, the, Jesus said the Holy Spirit's going to guide you into all truth. So why don't we all see it? Well, he does guide us into all truth, but it's not just a download. It's learning through life and study and meditation on the word of God and application and changes that God brings in your life bring different ways of looking at things you saw differently before. And I don't know. I just think that learning for a lifetime is, is thrilling. And, uh, and I don't believe that I know. Uh, well, like, like uh, Dave was mentioning my book on the three views of hell. I don't even know which of those views I hold. I wrote the book back in 2013, and that was after reading over eight, or t eight to 10 books by authors who held each of those views. Eight to 10 books on each view I read to get all their arguments. And I summarized them in my book without advocacy because I don't know what I believe. There's more than one view actually has some pretty impressive arguments, so what can I say? But do I need to know? How important is it for me to know what exactly, which view of hell is correct? I don't have to prepare for it. I don't have to pack for it. You know, so I don't plan to go there. So it's something I could still learn something more about. In fact, there's a great number of things I could still learn more about. So I'm comfortable with that. And I think in terms of your answer to your question, you'll get more, of, the more you study and meditate on scripture day and night, uh, the more, I don't know, just in God's time, the Holy Spirit will bring you along to where he wants you to be. And I, I can't give you a hard, fast rule how to know when it's literal and when it's not. Usually whatever genre of literature it appears in is a, an important factor. Yes, is Martha? Mm-hmm. If you couldn't hear her question, she said, when you change your view, how do you have confidence that you've come to a truer view than before? And... Um, and she mentioned the factor of the Holy Spirit giving you confidence. I would say this, every time I've changed my view on something that everybody else, I, uh, everybody I knew had held the way I previously held it, and then I gradually began to see things differently, I, I did not have confidence. Uh, at least, I mean, I had confidence in Scripture, and I never changed my view without Scripture that I was reading, chipping away at my previous view, and tending to form a new one. But uh, I'll tell you, whenever I'm, whenever I'm taught something that no one else I knew was teaching, I thought, it's not very likely that I'm right and everyone else is wrong. What helped me out is when I reach a view on my own and I'm sitting there very feeling very insecure about it, like I'm the only heretic who holds this view, and then I discover, oh yeah, a lot of respectable people Bible scholars and teachers have held this view. 
uh, I mean, if I got it from them, I wouldn't be sure that they were right, but if I reached on my own and then found out they taught it, that helps. Because I don't think any of us should be very sure of our own views if they differ from the majority of other Christians. Uh, I should say we should become very, we should be very um, slow to be sure of our views. We should make sure that we've tested every angle from scripture. And that would be, when I feel like, you know, on some issues I'm pretty sure I'm right now. And there's people smarter than me who hold other views different from mine. So why aren't they right? Well, they might be. There's always a possibility I could be wrong, obviously. But when, when the case is that they're holding the view I, I used to hold, and I know all the arguments for that view, I know every argument they could give me for their view because I used to defend it myself with the same arguments. But over the years, I've seen the fallacy in those arguments. That gives me somewhat more confidence that, that they're not correct and that, you know, that I've kind of, I've examined that. When you've examined all the views and you feel like you can reach a conclusion, well then, uh, then you can be more certain. But if you're, for example, if you're a, a Calvinist and you've never heard the arguments for Arminianism or vice versa, you're an Arminian, never heard the views for Calvinism, well, you might be so sure of yourself because your denomination teaches something but you've got to realize some pretty godly people with good credentials have held the other views that you don't hold. But once you've studied both sides and say, okay, I know all the things they say from these and what scriptures they use, and I can see, I can see where, where their mistake is, you know. They're taking that out of context or whatever. When you know all the arguments for the opposite side and you say, okay, I'm, I can go either way on this, but I think their views are weaker. Well, then you can be more sure of yourself. But I think an awful lot of people, for example, in the movement I was raised in, a lot of people had a dispensational view of end times prophecy, and it's all they ever heard. They never heard anything else. And they're sure of themselves. Now, when they call my show to talk to me, sometimes they want to, tell me what the arguments are for that view and they don't, they don't realize I gave those arguments for years and I had reasons for becoming less confident in those arguments from my own study of scripture but how do you know how do you have confidence in your view I just say be humble about your views you know if you think you see things better than the people in your group or whatever your church uh, you may be right or not, but there's no reason to be sure that you're right unless there's just no, no possible way that they could be right. And sometimes that is the case, but usually it's important on any controversy of you to be quite humble about it. Yes? Well, the rapture is mentioned in the Bible, but not by that name. In 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17, Paul said, the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout and the voice of the archangel and the trump of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. 
then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the air to meet the Lord in the air. That word caught up, which is referring to the living Christians at the time who are caught up uh, in the Latin. The word in Latin for that catching up is the word from which we get our English word rapture. And theologians often give titles to doctrines based on Latin because for a long time most theologians uh, were writing in Latin. So the word rapture is an anglicized Latin word for catching up. Now, it is distinguished from the resurrection in that the resurrection are the dead rising and the rapture is the living rising. But Paul places them both at the same time. I mean, the, the resurrection apparently a little earlier, probably moments earlier, I don't know. The dead in Christ rise first, then we who are alive and remain are caught up. So the rapture and the resurrection pretty much are, uh, happen about the same time. Now, when do they happen? Um, well, um, of course, I, I, I mentioned I taught the preacher of rapture for some years. I had uh, 19 or 20 biblical arguments for it. So I felt I was pretty well armed. But the time came when I was actually talking to a skeptic about it who wanted me to defend it. And I went through these 19 scriptural arguments with him in one sitting. And each time I dealt with one, I realized it didn't really say what I was saying it was saying. If you already believed what I believed, you could read that into the passage. But if someone didn't, like the person I was talking to, didn't believe that, there's nothing in the passage that would persuade them because it, there simply wasn't anything I ever found, including the very best arguments for the pre-trib rapture, uh, that actually said anything of a pre-trib rapture. It was largely a deduction, which was then supported by verses that could fit. But what really changed my mind on it was a couple of things. One was 2 Thessalonians 1, um, 7 and 8, where Paul said that it's a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you and to give you rest when the Lord comes in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not obey the gospel and so forth. Paul said that God would punish the, the persecutors and give rest to the saints when Jesus comes back in flaming fire, taking vengeance on, on the lost. Well, entering into rest, I, I would have, at that point, I would have put that seven years earlier than that, but Paul said, no, he'll give you rest when the Lord comes in flaming fire. That's 2 Thessalonians 1, uh, 7 and 8. But more convincing to me was uh, John 6, where Jesus said four times about his people, I will raise them up on the last day. Now, the Jews believed in a resurrection on the last day. Uh, remember when Jesus said to Martha, your brother will live again? She said, oh, I know, I'm in the resurrection on the last day. The Pharisees and rabbis taught that on the last day, God's going to raise all the dead. 
And Jesus said, yeah, I'm going to raise my people up on the last day. He said it in John 6, 39, and John 6, 40, and John 6, 44, and John 6, 54. Four times in one chapter. Now, when I saw that, I thought, well, the last day, I thought he's going to raise them up seven years before the last day. Actually, more literally, a thousand and seven years before the last day. Because I thought there's going to be the seven-year tribulation after the resurrection, and then the thousand years. And all of those are days. After that, so the new heaven and earth was no more day or night. So I thought, well, that's problematic for me. And Jesus is going to raise us up on the last day. Why would he call it the last day if there's lots of years afterwards? That, you know, it doesn't sound like the last day. It seems like the last day should be the day after which there's no more days. You know, it seemed to me. I toyed with the idea that he might mean the, just the last day of the church age, although he had never mentioned the church age in any of his teaching, but maybe that's how he intended for it to be understood. But then I ran across the same phrase in John 12, 48, where Jesus said, he that rejects my words has one that judges him. The words that I've spoken to you will judge you in the last day. So there's that last day again. But this time, it's the day that the wicked who reject Jesus' words will be judged. So he's going to raise his people up on the last day. He's going to judge the wicked on the last day. In Matthew 25, the sheep and the goats, Jesus said, when the Son of Man shall come in his glory and all his holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory and he'll gather all the nations before him and he'll separate between them as a shepherd separates between his sheep and his goats. As you go through the parable, you find the ones who are goats are the lost, and they go off into eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels, whereas the sheep, the righteous, go into eternal life. But they came at the same time, before the throne of God. He gathered all the nations at his coming and then separates them and sends them to their eternal destinies. So I guess I had a hard time with that that is, I had a hard time maintaining what I believe in the face of that. So, I believe that there is a rapture. I just don't believe that the rapture is the deliverance of the church from a, from a seven-year tribulation. I believe the rapture is, along with the resurrection, the time when Jesus returns, vindicates his name and his people, and establishes the new creation, I think. So that's how I understand the rapture thing. Yes. So your friends, or someone's made a distinction between the rapture and the second coming in that at the rapture we meet the Lord in the air and at his second coming, he comes down to the earth. And so they see this as different events. Sometimes they put it this way. At the rapture, Jesus returns for the saints. And at the end of the tribulation, he returns with the saints. And yet there's nothing in the Bible that places his coming back for the saints at a different time than his coming back with the saints. 
In 1 Thessalonians 4, when it says, we will meet the Lord in the air, the word meet is a Greek word found only two other places in the Bible. Uh, we meet the Lord in the air. There's two other times this word is used in the Bible. In Matthew 25, 1, when the 10 bridesmaids went out to meet the bridegroom, that's that same Greek word. And the other is in Acts 25, I think it's verse, I don't know, 15 or something. Paul is walking to Rome with, uh, as a prisoner and it says the church in Rome heard he was coming they went out to meet him same word now we have the word three times in the Bible in two cases it refers to people going out to welcome somebody in order to re accompany him on the remainder of his trip the bridesmaids go out to meet the bridegroom so they can accompany him to the bride's house which is where they started out and that's where he's coming to the Christians in Rome came out to meet Paul because he was coming to Rome. And they came out to meet him so they could accompany him. This is the same word that's used, we will meet the Lord in the air. Paul actually places that at the coming of the Lord, not before it. He says, uh, of course, uh, those of us who are alive and remain shall be caught up to meet the Lord. But that same phrase, those of us who are alive and remain, is used, I think, in verse 15, 14 or 15, where he said, those of us who are alive remain until the coming of the Lord. So the coming of the Lord is when those of us who are alive and remain will be caught up to meet him in the air. So, uh, you know, the Bible places the Jesus raising his people up on the last day. Yes, we will go to, into the air and meet him. I believe that. But only to accompany him the remainder of his descent. That's how I understand it those passages. Did you have your hand up, Matt? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm among those that believe that God can create in, in six literal days. And that would be the most natural way to understand Genesis chapter 1. I am therefore what would be called a young earth creationist. However, I could be an old earth creationist if I were persuaded, but that wouldn't make me an evolutionist. I don't believe evolution has a leg to stand on scientifically. I, don't, I think an old earth approach could be said to have a, a leg to stand on scientifically. It's controversial because there's also a leg to stand on for young earth creationism. I mean, if we're looking at the Bible, it's one thing. If we're looking at the scientific evidence, it's another. Some people think that Genesis 1 doesn't have to be taken literally. And I would say, well, maybe it doesn't have to be taken literally, but what excuse do we have for not taking it literally? I mean, if someone wants to say, well, a day, you know, a day could represent a long period of time. Okay, well, it could, but is that the most likely case? In, is that the most exegetical approach you can take to this passage? I don't think so. Now, I will say this. There are passages in the Bible elsewhere that I take to be non-literal, which I was once taught to take literally, especially in Revelation. But 
Revelation's a different kind of book than Genesis is. Genesis is a historical narrative. And we can see that by the fact that it gives us the creation of man and woman and then the fall and then they're driven out of the garden and then there's Cain and then there's Abel and then there's Seth and then there's the lineage of Seth up to Noah then there's the lineage of, uh, from Noah uh, through Shem up to Abraham and all of these generations are cataloged with years, dates, names. It's not written like it's not history. It's written like it is history. Now, uh, again, I've been wrong about some things before and therefore it's not inconceivable that I could be made to see Genesis 1 differently, but I don't see any good reason to. I think the only reason people try to make different explanations of Genesis 1 is that they are persuaded that we know on other grounds that the earth is old, or we know on other grounds that evolution occurred rather than fiat creation. Uh, in other words, they, they think, well, science now has proven that the earth took, is, is 4.5 billion years old and, and evolution occurred. Therefore, that being true, we have to find a way to reinterpret Genesis if we're going to maintain our faith in the Bible. Of course, many people just throw out their faith in the Bible. But those who want to maintain their faith in the Bible but, have, but are persuaded that uh, evolution occurred and so forth, they find ways to take this differently so that they can accommodate that. I don't see any reason to. I've studied evolution. I've studied the age of the earth issues. And what I'd say is that what people think is scientific proof is far from it. I'd say that what people have to understand about that particular controversy in, in terms of dealing with the scientific evidence is that all scientists, whether they believe in creation, and many of them do, or believe in evolution, which most of them don't, I mean, do believe in evolution, all scientists have the exact same scientific data they're looking at. It's not a question if somebody has the evidence and someone else doesn't. All scientists have access to the same evidence. It's a different worldview that is being used to interpret the evidence. It's a different paradigm. Uh, a young earth creationist believes that God worked a lot of miracles. And he could have worked more if he wanted to because there's no limit to the miracles God can do. He's all powerful. He can speak the world into existence. He can speak animal life into existence. People who believe that very strongly don't see a whole lot of reason to interpret the data in an old earth way. Um, and, and a lot of Christians I know who want, who are old earth creationists, I, I don't say theistic evolutionists, there's different categories here. A theistic evolutionist is a person who believes God used evolution. They believe in a very old earth, usually 4.5 billion years, uh, and that God used the evolutionary process that, that Darwin described and that, and that atheists believe in. Uh, yeah, that, that really happened, but God did it. So he's still the creator. He just used a different method than what we might think of as fiat creation, speaking it, and it was so. So those are theistic evolutionists. There are other people who are old earth creationists who believe that God created things with his word suddenly in different phases, on different days. 
but there might have been millions or billions of years between those days. Um, and that, you know, God did it the way it's described, but it was stretched out over a lot more time. Now, if I believed that, it wouldn't be, I mean, I, I wouldn't have any problems in my conscience believing something like that. I don't think it's what the Bible suggests, or I don't think the scientific evidence demands it. I think the scientific evidence that all scientists can look at can be interpreted through a, a more or less naturalistic or more or less supernaturalistic worldview. And I've always seen it through Genesis 1 in a literal sense. And uh, I'm young earth. I have friends who can't bring themselves to see it that way, but they still believe God created. They're not atheists, not even necessarily evolutionists, but they just believe God created over a longer period of time. So I think different options exist, but obviously they're not all right. Uh, someone's wrong. And I, I personally think the way I think is correct, but obviously they think they are. Yes? Mm-hmm. Well, right. He obviously made Adam and Eve sexually mature the day he made them. They were only a day old, but they didn't look like day-old babies, right? He made a functional earth, a functional universe. He made stars apparently five billion light years away, which on natural terms would take five billion years for the light to get here. But who's to say how long it would take with supernatural intervention? Right. Yeah, tree rings are another thing because tree rings are formed a certain way uh, by seasons changing and stuff like that. And I don't know if we'd cut down one of the trees in the Garden of Eden if it would have had rings or not. I assume most of the trees alive today were, came into existence since then and developed their tree rings the way that, that we're familiar with. But starlight, the Bible says in Genesis 1.14 that God made the sun, moon, stars to give light on the earth. So if he made stars to give light on the earth and they happen to be five billion light years away, my presumption is that he made them already giving light to the earth, that the light already was reaching the earth when he made them and they were simply made to continue doing so. So I, yeah, I, I agree with you. I think that many things uh, that look like they're old may not be old because God could have made them exactly that way. And I'm sure he did. Actually, soil today, uh, what, you know, soil is created by, among other things, glaciers grinding rocks down very gradually into little tiny particles. How long would it take glaciers to make all the soil and all the sand on the beaches? Well, gazillions of years, probably. But God made soil capable of hosting plant life on day three. It didn't take billions of years to make that soil. Now, it might make, take billions of years to replace it all if it had to be done, but we, when, we, when we take a supernaturalist worldview of creation, 
we, we have to say, well, processes as they are occurring today and measurable at measurable rates uh, do not necessarily shed any light on how long it took initially for God to create a functional universe. Adam and Eve were made to be fruitful and multiply, so he made them functional in that way. A baby born after them is not functional in that way until it grows older. So, same thing with animals, I assume, and lots of things, soil, all kinds of things that normally take a long time to do now when there's no supernatural intervention. It could be instantaneously done supernaturally, and that's what I believe happened. Yes, Mark? The egrams, I, I've heard people talk about them. It's, it's kind of a, it's like a personality test of some kind or something. I've never myself personally encountered egrams, but I have people call me sometimes on the air and their, their church is doing this or their youth group's doing this. And the persons who call me usually have done some research and tell me it's not, not really something the church should be doing. I don't know why. I don't know if there's some occultism behind it or what. I, I don't even know what it is. But I would say this. If Jesus didn't teach it, and the apostles didn't teach it or practice it. Why do I need to? Now, somebody said, well, they didn't, they didn't use telephones either. Well, true. But a, a telephone is, is, a, is something that doesn't, it doesn't affect or analyze my personality. It might shape it if I'm not careful. But, I mean, there's technology that can be used for good or for evil and doesn't have any moral taint to it that I know of. But when they're dealing with personalities and, and issues of the mind and the soul, and even if they're just analyzing, even, even if they're not trying to affect it, but just to read it, I say, well, the problem with things like this, I mean, that's what psychology is all about. Psychology and those kinds of tools, whether it's the books about the four temperaments or all kinds of different things, those things are... Um, usually trying to understand human nature apart from what the Bible says on the subject. I'm not saying that we're not entitled to learn about human nature beyond the things the Bible says, but, but I think psychology becomes obsessed with human analysis of human nature. And I, you know, you learn about human nature by experience, by wisdom, and so forth. But when you try to get it down on a piece of paper and say, you know, here's the number that, that describes you, well, my position is, well, even if that's true, is there some reason I need to know that? Does my walk with Christ hinge on my knowing the right egram number for me? 
I mean, how so? <clears throat> I don't think Paul needed that. I don't think Peter needed that. I don't think any Christians needed it in the first 20 centuries of Christianity. <clears throat> Why do we suddenly need it now? I guess I'm just an old crotchety, old get-off-my-lawn kind of a guy. But I I'm skeptical about things like that. I'm, I'm not going to broad brush and say, oh, they're from the devil. Some things are. Some things that churches adopt are, come right out of the occult or out of very uh, humanistic psychology. Frankly, some things churches have practiced that I've seen come right out of shamanism. I mean, there's just really some undiscerning Christian leaders somewhere <clears throat> thinking this is a good thing. I think, why? Well, maybe you could do what Jesus said and teach these people to observe everything Jesus commanded. That'd be a good thing. How could that not be a good thing? But getting them to look inside themselves and analyze themselves, I think people are more spiritually healthy when they're not thinking too much about themselves and just thinking, how can I serve God? How can I serve this person? How can I love this person more? How can I do more good for Christ? I mean, looking inward is what psychology is all about. And it seems like this kind of thing is too. And I think the more that the church encourages people to look inside and analyze, the more it's distracting them from what Christians are supposed to be thinking about. I mean, if I've got sinful problems in my life I can't overcome, and someone says, well, the reason is because you had this thing happen to you when you were a kid or something like that. I mean, that's kind of in the realm of psychology, but maybe somebody has some insight there. I'm not sure. But if I'm not living in sin... If my life with God is good and I'm following Jesus and serving him, why do I need to distract myself from that in order to look into my soul and, and so forth? I mean, Paul did say in 2 Corinthians 13, examine yourselves and see whether you're in the faith. That shouldn't take too long. You know, I don't think we should make a six-week course of it. Um, So if you're at a church that does that, I'm, I, it's not something I would see any use of. And I say that, acknowledge I'm ignorant of it. I don't even know what it is. But I've gotten along pretty well without it. Most Christians in history have gotten along without it. And I'm not sure I've ever met a Christian whose spiritual life has improved by it. Maybe there are some. But more people's spiritual lives are improved by meditating day and night on the word of God because they, de they delight in the law of the Lord and meditate on it day and night. And they're like trees planted by rivers of water that bring forth their fruit and their season and their leaf does not wither. And whatsoever they do shall prosper, the Bible says. Why don't the churches do more of that and stop running after every fad that supposedly offers pizzazz to their ministry? Hmm. That's what I think. It's fads. Oh, in, the, in, the, in the years I've been in ministry, I've seen so many fads come and go, especially in charismatic circles. A lot of places I teach are charismatic churches. And they just fall for every kind of fad so, so often. Mm-hmm.